When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It, it all depends on the personality of the person who's talking. Yeah. And, and the good thing about you know being able to listen to it before you do it is you can hear how much he edits. Uh-huh. <laughs> See, oh, yeah. He helped. cuts almost helped. all of it out. Okay, so don't yeah. worry about what you yeah. have. It's That's basically great. just going to be me talking about movies. <laughs> <laughs> so? So? Do your are magic. We, are we... Are we uh... Oh, wait, we have a name now. He always starts with... Uh... <laughs> it's, it's a prerequisite. <laughs> Uh, hi, this is Josh Olson, and you're listening to The Movies That Made Me, the official podcast of Trailers from Hell. are here uh, this week with uh, John Wyatt, uh, who runs Synespia. If you're a Los Anglian, you know what that means. And if you're not, I'm going to tell you. Um, John has been, for 17 years now, uh, screening movies at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery, which is in, uh, where? where is it? It's in Hollywood. It's in Hollywood, yeah. It's behind um, Paramount. <laughs> uh, it's an amazing space. Um, I don't know if that sounds ghoulish to you or not, but it, it really isn't. It's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful experience. Um, normally, I mean, you see it about, I want to say 2,000 people, am I right? It's 4,000 people. 4,000 yeah. people. Wow. Wow. Every show, yeah. And uh, they tend to sell out. In the summer, it's mostly Saturday nights. Uh, they do stuff like um, Fourth of July shows with amazing fireworks. And um, and it's incredible. You bring picnic chairs and uh, food and wine and various and sundry other substances that are legal in California and <laughs> uh, hang out and watch great, great, great movies. Um I, I, I've gone many times. I remember shortly after Prince died, uh, you ran Purple Rain, um, and Questlove was there spinning discs before and after. And I have never experienced anything like that. It was, it was the greatest, greatest wake I have ever been to the film played like gangbusters. And of course, at the end of that movie is probably the greatest 20 minutes in the history of rock and roll cinema and everybody's up on their feet. And then the music just played all night and, Everyone was just dancing their asses off and crying, and it was just fantastic. But um, do you want to tell us a little bit more? I mean, have I done the uh, thing justice? Or Yeah, I think so. I mean, the Hollywood Forever Cemetery has been there for over 100 years. It's a place where a lot of the golden era of Hollywood, uh, a lot of those people are buried or have their final resting place, like Judy Garland and Rudolph Valentino and John Huston and... All these interesting people. Joey Ramone. Joey Ramone, Chris Cornell now is a final resting place there. So people from the music world, from the Hollywood world, and it's really beautiful. It sounds weird, and I've spent a lot of these 17 years saying, no, no, I swear to God, it's not a weird thing to do, I swear. (laughs) 
But you it really, really isn't. To... I mean, once you get there, it makes yeah. perfect. You hear about it and you go, that's yeah. weird. And then you get there and it's just this great atmosphere. Well, the screenings themselves are on a lawn. There's a giant yeah. lawn. So there's no graves. And the lawn is actually part of the Douglas Fairbanks Memorial. And he bought the whole lawn and was like, uh, you know, this is my lawn. Which is <laughs> really interesting because they never put graves there. And so there are movies. So if there is you know, some kind of afterlife. I think all these old Hollywood people would be probably very happy that we're watching classic films and people are coming out and enjoying movies. I like to think that. Uh, yeah, no, I would think so too. Um, and uh, as ever, of course, we're joined by uh, the great Joe Dante, uh, who knows everything there is to know about every movie ever made. No, that's slight exaggeration. Slight exaggeration. Uh, Joe, you've, you've been to some of these screenings, correct? I have. And in fact, uh, I shot part of a movie there uh, in Burying the X. Burying the X, that's uh, right. Anton Yelchin's character is a film buff, and he takes his girlfriend to a screening of Night of the Living Dead at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery. Yes, it's sort right. of a vague plot point. Uh, and um, uh, in a roundabout way, um, Anton is still there. Because uh, when he passed away, uh, his parents um, not only uh, made his final resting place be at the Hollywood Forever, but there's a, a statue that they commissioned of him. Which oh, wow. Looks vaguely like him. Uh, and um, it, it's a special place for me because I remember shooting there with him. Yeah. And uh, we were there for a, a day and part of a night. And uh, he's, his statue is right in the middle of the shot that we did with him. So oh, it's. Wow. Um, you know, it's kind of it's kind of bittersweet for me, but uh, but I I I like cemeteries anyway, just be, not because of how ghoulish they are, but just because there's something peaceful about them, and we are going to end up in there sooner or later, so you might as well get used to it. And um, and Hollywood Forever is a remarkably well kept up. It wasn't apparently for a while, but it, but it, it, under current management, it's remarkably well kept up and um, kind of a haven from the outside world and, and you know until the mayor bradley era uh, it used to have a rolling lawn outside on on uh, santa monica boulevard on the oh. other side of the road uh, but then they decided to sell it sell off the land and now it's a strip mall so, so it's surrounded uh, oh yeah it's surrounded by a strip area. mall but it used to actually yeah. be a pretty attractive area yeah. uh, so now the attractive area is inside yeah you can't tell it's not outside. not where the auto parts store is there's also a lot of feral cats there that they take care of, which are yes. kind of lovely. Uh, There's a really cool group that goes in and takes care of takes care of the cats, and um, they're really cute and they're wild. You can't get near them. Yeah, can't get near them. But I think after a Cinespia screening, they come over and feast on the remnants of people's, <laughs> you know, uh, or the people who are left behind yeah if you do leave <laughs> if someone's passed out in the grass now i'm also really i'm a fan of some some of the gravestones there are these black marble with laser etched photographs on them yeah. and it's amazing how many of them are these sort of uh older gentlemen who have uh cigarettes hanging out of their mouths in the picture on their gravestone which uh some kind of final act of defiance and for something. some reason it's very popular with uh slavic and russian uh, yeah people um yes the uh, and, and and many of those um, monuments do have those kind of I dare dare not say kitschy but uh, those kind of uh, pictures and there there are a few that have um, moving pictures oh I've never they what video they, or they're like they're like videos they're like like um, <laughs> I've never seen like those. like gifs you know um, <laughs> it's it's a new thing I I want one. <laughs> 
Um, and you also, of course, because uh, it's not always warm and beautiful in Los Angeles, you do screenings uh, other than summer as well, in winter and fall and spring and so forth, um, in some of the classic theaters downtown as well. Is that that's correct? Yes. There's, I believe it's the highest concentration of movie palaces in the world in downtown, in downtown. Los Angeles. It's yeah. definitely in the country, and I can't imagine maybe there's a country I'm not thinking of that was so movie. And the fact that they're still there yeah. is pretty remarkable. Yeah. I think partly they're there because it's too expensive to tear them down. Well, actually, what I found, I started maybe about eight years ago, um, longer than that, actually, trying to find out what I could do in there. And the reason they're still there is because they're such good locations and they make tons of money off locations. And oh, sure. they're all privately owned, uh, or until a few years ago they were. And... I would talk to these families and they were really, really nervous about filling them up with people. And I think it was left over from owning them in the 80s and 90s when they were still active theaters. And they were worried about people doing graffiti or trashing it. And they were very hesitant. And I spent years convincing a couple of these families to let me do some screenings. And the first one we did, I made it uh, jacket and tie required. And we have a very, very um, good audience. This is an audience of movie lovers. And they were in jacket and ties. And they came into these beautiful, beautiful palaces. And the owners were like, oh, what a great group, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and it worked. And for How presentable. six or maybe six or seven years now, we've been doing these. And these theaters are unbelievable. They're giant, ornate, cavernous theaters different floors, different rooms, ballrooms, and they'll have fountains and golden angels and chandeliers, and they're just way over the top. And uh, most people in L.A. don't even know they're there. And um, the L.A. Conservancy does a great series there throughout those theaters, and people who are interested in L.A. architecture might know, but most people just walk right by and don't even realize uh, what's hidden behind these marquees downtown. So it's been really fun to go in there. We've fixed up the booths. We project in 35, and we have bands and DJs and bring in popcorn machines and do a whole thing, and it's really, um, it's really a fun time. Uh, yeah, no, those are, those are great nights. Um, Don, have you ever been, Don, to the cemetery ones or downtown? Um, Don Barrett, our engineer, <laughs> is not mic'd. Um, well, John, you, you, one of the, um, I guess when you're screening movies for 4,000 people, obviously you have to show kind of sort of bigger classic movies and, and, uh, well-loved and 2001 and Jaws and, and, um, um, great, great movies. Um, but obviously there's, there's some films that you probably can't cause the audience doesn't know them very well or, um, but you, you've brought us a list, I guess, of, uh, 10 movies you wish people knew better than they do is that yes i do love all kinds of movies and yes it's a beast to program the uh cemetery because we do um we do sell out most shows and that's actually we sell out every show and it's been that way for a few years and that's actually created a high bar like how do you get four thousand people most of them young people a lot of them under 25 how do you get them out? What do they want to go see? How can you challenge them a little, maybe push them into seeing something they haven't seen, which um, 
is surprisingly a lot. And for instance, this weekend we're showing The Graduate, and I guarantee this will be oh. hard to believe, but there will be First a time for couple thousand people who have never seen that film, which is really fun because that's a movie that plays like gangbusters to this day. It still feels modern. It's so fun. Where uh, Buck Henry, the writer's coming out, and Catherine Ross, the um, star, is going to be there. And I just think um, it's going to resonate really well. But yes, there are a lot of films um, I would love to screen for an audience. Unfortunately, there's not enough small theaters in L.A. doing radical things where you can see some really obscure movies. And um, hopefully that's going to change because I know the audience is out there. And I do have a list. Awesome. Do you want to, if there, are they in any kind of order? Do you want to start at no, the bottom and work your way up to your favorite? really. Or? And it's kind of all over the place. Even better. But um, this one's jumping off the page for me. And it's a film called Taking Off by Milos Forman. Sure, yeah. And to me, this is one of the greatest lost, quote unquote, films of all times. It's his first American movie when he came over from Europe and it's incredibly funny and risky and entertaining and it's all but vanished from earth because of a music rights issue and the reason there's a music rights issue is because to make the film they had an audition and the audition was for teenage girls to come in and sing a song and those auditions they filmed, and the actual auditions oh, are right. in the movie. Right. What's the song? I can't. Um, it's not. I think it's Melancholy Baby or one okay. of those. It's like a, yeah. The, I remember. It's been a long time, but I remember yeah. It's um. Well, there's a bunch of different songs sung by different girls, mm-hmm. and and most of which were written apparently by them. Yeah. Uh, for instance, Kathy Bates. That's in right. the movie That's, yes. as Bobo Bates. Exactly. Virtually Bates. unrecognizable. Yes. Um, Carly Simon, I think, yep. is in the movie uh, before she was Carly Simon. Wow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is, I agree, it is a fabulous movie. It's yeah. one of my favorite movies. I loved it from the time it came out. But it is MIA. Uh, it was released by Universal. Uh, 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 Crown and Enright were the producers. And they don't have the rights to that music. And so it, it is available in Europe on bootlegs but it's not even bootlegged here mm. um where have i seen it then? Been, well there is a print the cinematech at one point or? there is a print and i have shown it i've shown it three times now and once was at um cine family okay that's that where yeah. you saw it but it's the only way to see it is this print but there is one print that floats around and i did see it in new york um I made a whole bunch of people go with me. I like bought their tickets, made them go. So I was like, no, you have to see this. And it was at um, Film Forum and Milos was there. Mm. And it was a really, really entertaining Q&A because um, he was not shy about coming to America, not totally understanding English or being able to speak it, or at least not knowing the nuances. And the writer, Buck Henry, was with him. And uh, he said literally they would do a shot. And he wouldn't totally know if it worked. because He wasn't totally understanding what these young girls were saying. So he'd look at Buck Henry, you know, kind of questioning. And Buck Henry would 
shake his head no <laughs> and Milos would say okay let's let's do it again or he would shake his head yes and he's like okay print it and you know he was sort of swimming in this weird sea and they managed to pull off this incredibly funny movie that's i think like pretty um it's a bit radical like uh you know it's about a girl she leaves her house she runs away and goes to new york to do these auditions and the parents are desperately looking for her and they're getting more and more anxious they get more and more drunk until they're actually more ridiculous than all the hippies and freaks that the young girls hanging out with and they cut together these auditions that are real and there's one sequence where they do they do one song it's a classic tune and everybody's singing one little part and you just see face after face and right. voice after voice singing this thing and it's just it's hilarious it's it's an incredible incredible movie and apparently maybe some somebody who wants to see it can get a bootleg now which well, is good. there is a there is a bootleg but it looks pretty crappy oh that's too bad it's <laughs> really well shot too and buck henry's in it yeah. and he is and len carlin uh, his he, wife yeah they're both so so great they're hilarious so that was one that I just, I think the whole world needs to see it. And yeah, no, I, that's right. So you, yeah, I saw it at Cine Family, so that must have been thanks to you. Yeah. Um, I love, you. I have, for me, and if it's on your list, we'll go back and cut this out, but uh, Diary of a Mad Housewife is the one that anytime that shows, I make a point of buying tickets for a bunch of people who've never seen it because you can never, because of Alice Cooper. You can never. And is that's, that what that's it is? not on video. That's because of Alice Cooper. Yeah. It was on VHS. I do have a Yeah, VHS. I've got a crappy, crappy, crappy yeah. VHS. So it's Alice one. Cooper. I love that Because he's playing movie. in that party. Yeah, that's just, right. I mean, it's it's a fine seat. I'd be happy to get 90% of the movie or 95% yeah. without Alice Cooper singing. Just oh. <laughs> but I do do a movie that you um, would, would do, or do that for where you actually just, because the only way to see it is in a theater, buy tickets for friends who haven't seen it. Uh, I had them to go. I used to. Uh, Aside from Gremlins, when I was in uh, college, I would. It was a, a shock corridor was playing at the local so. grindhouse, and I used to bring. It was playing for a week, and I would bring my friends to see Shock Corridor, and if they didn't like it, they wouldn't be my friends. <laughs> they were uh, it was, basically it was like a test. <laughs> <laughs> that's a tough test. That's a that's an intense film. Wow. That's, that's, did you, um, you actually mentioned that on a, another episode, I think. And I remember thinking like, did, did they know they were being tested or? No, they so, just didn't, they didn't. They just said, and they wonder just, why, Joe just stops calling. Why I wasn't answering. Wow. <laughs> so maybe all these decades later, someone who pines for their friendship with young Joe Dante is listening to this podcast in an attempt to <laughs> rekindle the flames Gl of their friendship. Now they know why he never <laughs> called them back. I did get to meet, I met Sam Fuller once at the old Cinematheque at Raleigh Studios, and even he was surprised. He he couldn't believe so many people were clamoring to get into this screening, and I, of course at that time they would show all his films. And he didn't speak or anything, he was hiding in the snack zone, and he couldn't believe how excited these fans were. And my sister went up and she said, I'm such a big fan, and he just got this huge smile and he said, my films are new again. He was so excited. And he That's just great. was like, really? Okay. Because that does make me think of White Dog, which is another movie that maybe that's been... There's a Criterion 
Oh, there is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 D- d- despite Paramount's attempts to bury it, right. it has risen. And I, is, it, is it me? I, I go back every few years and whatever magic it has <laughs> on people is missing for me somehow. My, Joe's just glaring at me. I think, no, just, okay. I think I've just been fired. <laughs> I, I, my friend John Davison produced it, so I can't say oh, okay. that. <laughs> it's a great film, John. Should come on the show. <laughs> um, uh, well, great. What, what, what's next? Well, not all these films. A lot of these films are available. I just... I you just pick one that nobody can see. <laughs> yeah. I, I just don't understand why, at least with film buffs, why some of them aren't more popular... And one we've talked about, Josh, is The Hired Hand, Ugh. which is a really oddball film that slipped through the cracks. You know, it's not. That's the thing. It's so not oddball. It's so... Yeah, but I mean, it's, it's, oddball it definitely that. slipped through the cracks. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I know what you mean. It, yeah. Another, oddball another, in that it got made. Another, yeah. another universal. Yeah. yeah. It was that magic moment from Universal yeah. where they were doing Making these the last films. movie. I think that's what did the movie. Yeah. <laughs> Up until the last movie, which was the, but they, these sort of radical experimental films that were feature films were being made by a major studio, and um, the hired hand to me is just, it's a revisionist western or whatever you want to call it, maybe an acid western, and it's so gorgeous. It has these incredible sequences of superimposed. Um, Photography by Filmo Sigmund, you know, beautiful, beautiful photography that's very psychedelic, and these slow, weird shots being superimposed onto each other in what's, you know, a Western. And um, I think it's really terse, great script also, and really good performances, and directed by Peter Fonda, which, you know, I don't know. Maybe there could have been something that happened with him as being a director. It's hard to imagine now. Well, it was his follow-up to Easy Rider. Right. So it should have been. That was back when they you had one hit and they said, great, yeah. now make more. And then they would yeah. never get <laughs> And he did make another one that he directed. Well, he did yeah. Idaho Transfer. Idaho Transfer. Which no, no one has seen. Which is interesting also. But The Hired Hand has an incredible score by Bruce Langhorn and... Um, was very, as far as I knew, unknown to a lot of you know modern film buffs, younger film buffs. And um, I did track down Bruce Langhorn and um, made an effort with my record label friends to put out that soundtrack. It's, it's gorgeous, just these simple banjo lines playing through reverb and little bit of piano wait did you is my cd from your company that is from a german oh, okay uh, sorry yeah that's a german <laughs> company the competition and yeah and eventually um um it didn't happen with my record label friends but i got to spend this afternoon with him and he at that time had 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 a stroke so he couldn't talk very well and he was uh even missing some of the joints on his fingers and and bruce Lang, bruce langhorn is uh, Mr. Tambourine Man. He's the guy that Bob Dylan wrote the song about, and he was a very famous folk singer in Washington Square Park scene of uh, New York in those days, and made a lot of great music, collaborated with many famous people. And he couldn't speak very well, and he was, um, you know, missing these joints. And then he just opened this piano and just started playing all this beautiful music, 
almost like his, he was trying to tell us like, hey, I'm not that fucked up. I can right. still do, you know, I'm still here inside and was just playing this beautiful music. Mm. And then we went out to a shed and we went into the shed and his masters of all these different soundtracks were in there. And I was removing junk and there was a rat's nest <laughs> and I tore this rat's nest out and we saved these masters and pulled them out and had um, uh, some people bake them. They actually like heat them up so they don't, uh, so they survive. And there was a porn soundtrack in there and, and the hired hand and Idaho transfer and, um, but anyways, the the score in the movie really lends itself to the feeling of the movie, which is kind of melancholy and wistful. And it's a really singular Western. There's not a lot of Westerns that have so much, you know, emotion in them in this way. Well, and the relationship between Fonda and Warren Oates, who are yeah. obviously great friends. And I just I feel like the, the, the chemistry between the two of them has never been better. It's really, really good. And it's, it's kind of a moving film, if you can get into it. And it's got these beautiful, beautiful sequences um, that are, are really experimental. You know, the kind of things that Coppola started doing later. And I believe it was Frank Mazzola, is that his name? Mm -hmm. That incredible editor. Maybe he was a child actor. He has some story, but he's... Um, was one of the editors at that time and and I like experimental film and this is a, a movie that really straddles a couple worlds that I love because I do love westerns. Oh, no, I'll, I'll say it because I mean you're coming from that angle and I'm just like a you know meat and potatoes narrative and my old man talked about this movie for years and I remember it finally came out on DVD and I got to watch it. It was knocked out and now there's a great Blu-ray of it. And it's it to me, it's one of those movies. Um, McCabe and Mrs. Miller is another where when it came out, people were freaking out over, you know, it's this revisionist hippie thing and he's just destroyed. The, and you look at him today and it's like, they're Westerns, man. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they're, it works. I mean, it, yes. it does everything that a Western's supposed to do. And then it does all this other stuff as well that is so lovely. I just remember those the light shimmering off the water in yeah. those opening scenes of that film. So what's your next one? Nope. Joe's bored. <laughs> no, I'm just, he's got a whole list and we only got an hour. I mean, some of these we aren't, hours, aren't so lie. obscure, but for, I think for a younger generation, I'm, I'm just baffled why they're not more popular. Um, and then I do have one on here that basically no one's seen, which I will get to, but I'm kind of obsessed and I know this is... Uh, some people aren't fans, but I love the stunt. The stunt man. A man on the run. The woman who had to know why. Who the hell are you? And the director who offered him a hiding place. This will be a stuntman, who is an actor, who is a character in a movie, who is an enemy soldier, who will look for you amongst all those. The Stuntman. In a world where nothing is what it seems, the hardest stunt is to hold on to reality. Richard Rushmore. Who's not a fan? People, I think, have 
reactions to it. Because on the surface, it is like a 70s cheese kind of thing going on, especially with that soundtrack, which I've grown to love. But that movie, for me, every time I watch it, I see something new. And I feel like, um, I feel like he's such an interesting person, Richard Rush, because he made so many films before The Stuntman was, you know, making biker films in the 60s. He made Psych Out. And um, I did get a chance to meet him once. And he told me, and I believe him, that he invented uh, racking focus. Right, yes. Yeah. So, you know, you see something in the foreground, maybe straw waving in the wind, some grass, and then the focus is racked or, or pushed really hard to a something way in the background. Well, that was his style. I mean, that's, yeah. he did that in the biker movies. Yeah. And, and it, it, it was like, you know, Sidney Fury had a style of, you know, shooting through stirrups and, and putting big lampshades on the corner of the widescreen right. and stuff. I mean, that was his style. Um, and, and, and Rush kind of, I think he sort of started to abandon that style later in his Definitely. Uh, I, I heard him career. say, yeah, I saw a, a screening of Freebie and the Bean at the Cinematheque, which played like the best action movie that just came out this week. I love I saw that it. Movie. But he came out and, um, yeah, he said that. And it was one of those things where you go, I don't know if, is, is that true, Joe? Do you think, is he the guy? Did he invent the rack focus? Well, he didn't. He, he, he didn't necessarily invent it. I mean, it obviously existed. But uh, he, he turned it into a personal style. And when you see... The Savage Seven or those kind of movies. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 the way that he shoots the motorcycles, or I think it was probably Laszlo Kovacs. Uh, it, it's it's all. It, it's not. There's no staging involved. It's all in, you know, uh, layers of, of of image. Right. Uh, which is you know a fairly arty way to approach a motorcycle picture. <laughs> well, I I brought it up because I feel like by the time he gets to the stuntman, you have a thousand things like that that he's inventing. And I feel like there's a thousand ideas in that movie of how you could compose a shot. And all of those things are in the theme of the movie, which is about basically like not everything is what it seems. And it's about perception and appearance, which sounds highfalutin, but it's in this like kind of slightly cheesy 70s action movie. And I just think some of the these compositions are brilliant. You'll see someone in a reflection, you'll be watching a scene between two people and then you'll realize it's a reflection and then that reflection is reflecting something else and then they suddenly are in the frame and it's really, and all of it is about what they're talking about, but you could easily watch the movie and not notice any of it and it feels really natural and yeah. and I just, and something about that movie, I love watching it. There's tons of suspense <laughs> Because you don't know, it's about a guy who um, is running away from the cops and stumbles into a film shoot. And the director, who's Peter O'Toole, who's the greatest, um, is this sort of grandiose, uh, egocentric, slightly crazy director. And he knows he's running from the cops. And he brings him in as a stuntman, knowing that this guy will do anything, basically, to not get caught. And you'd never know if the stuntman is crazy, uh, played by Stephen Railsback, Steve Railsback, who's another great actor 
uh, who's pigeonholed forever after he played after Manson. Manson yes. <laughs> but he's so good in it, and Barbara Hershey. And you never know if he's going to blow it, and you start to think maybe the director's trying to kill him. And you never really know what's going on. There's these shifting realities, and it's and it's fun. It's just a fun movie. And I love movies about making movies. I can't yeah. help it. You know, things just, like Day for Night and... This weekend. Oh, yeah. Took this picture. Yes, <laughs> Josh is showing us a picture of the this famous. This will play well on radio. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's where, of course, where Some Like It Hot was shot. And there, there, it's a picture of the Hotel Del Coronado where there, this picture yes. and uh, Some Like It Hot and some other films have been shot. And it's, uh, it's an amazing place if you've never been there. Yeah, but that's a great film. It's also, it's got a speech that I've never forgotten about. Uh, Peter O'Toole talks about his friend making his his searing anti-war film. And then the weekend it opens up, it uh, causes enlistment to go up 50%. Yeah. <laughs> I, like, I love the speech where Steve Railsback in the middle, suddenly he's saying, you know, I don't know what's happening anymore. I'm real. I'm not just... A play, you know, a toy for this director. He says, "I'm a real person. I'm not a character." And it's like, wait, is he talking to us? Or yeah. Like, is he a character? <laughs> or like, and he's a stuntman who's a fugitive who's pretending to be a. There's just so many layers, and I don't know why more people don't like that. And famously, this may be apocryphal, but I've heard this that Truffaut was visiting the U.S. and someone said, "Who is your favorite director?" And he said, I don't know his name, but I saw his movie last night, and it's called The Stuntman. And I feel like that alone, like every every person interested in film or filmmaking should watch it, if only to like just steal all well, these. He said the same thing after he saw Duchess and the Dirtwater Fox, though. I'm <laughs> <laughs> not kidding. I'm lying. I'm lying. But what, there was some, there was a release thing, because I remember The Stuntman was very hard to see when it first came out. I mean, it's always been hard to see, but it got kind of dropped at one or two theaters and then yanked and yeah i don't i can't remember who distributed it there was some weird eh. want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money well i've got the podcast for you i'm sean piles and i host nerd wallets smart money podcast on our show we help listeners like you make the most of your finances i sit down with nerd wallets team of nerds personal finance experts in credit cards banking investing and more we answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, anyway, great one. Next one. Let's go. Mm, well, um, this may be too mainstream. I don't know. But no rules. No rules. another movie, another movie I just can't believe more film buffs aren't into is Ride the High Country. The first, I believe it's the first Peckinpah feature, right? No, it's not. It's, but it's the first it's one that had Joel McRae and Randolph Scott on it. Gotcha. It's, it's the first. No, it's he the did first. a picture called The Deadly Companions with Brian Keith. Oh, that's before. That was okay. his first. Gotcha. Feature. In all the stirring legends of the frontier west, there is none as exciting as the reckless saga of the men who pushed the last outposts of civilization across the Sierra Nevadas. 
the men who ride the high country. You add them all up and I'd figure I was owed about all the gold we could carry out of these mountains. Looks like you've got a pretty good claim. <laughs> oh, it's a gold mine, honey. Why don't you come on over and take a look? The lure of gold and the lust for excitement held them together. Two of a kind when danger threatened, but miles apart when tempers blazed. You always fancied yourself faster than me. Draw, you damn tin horn. But it's definitely, it's the first, it's the first one that coalesces into a Sam Peckinpah film. Yeah. Well, no, The Deadly Companion is, is, is a Sam Peckinpah it, film, but it was, it was, it, it was produced by Maureen O'Hara's husband and apparently there was a lot of dissension and recutting and stuff like that. So it's, it's not quite, but it's, it's sort of like an, a, a big episode of The Westerner because yeah. it's got Brian Keith Brian in it. Brian Keith, yeah. Um, but no, Brian, the, the, I, uh, Ride the High Country or Guns in the Afternoon, I think it was called in, in, in Europe, uh, is really the sort of the first emblematic pack of picture that's okay joe said it better yeah i think i mean i really really love that movie and i think yeah. it's just totally forgotten to a lot of people like people who love peck and pie they don't look at that film and i think it's got so many uh interesting things in it as a western and it's really kind of got this noble sense to it with this these old characters who are of course you know randolph scott and joel mccray were famous cowboys and westerns and they're at the end of their careers and there's this weird self-reflexive thing and in the movie they're sort of done and there's a question of whether they should rip off the money that they're transporting for a gold company um and or if they should stick by their morals and if their word is still worth something or they, you know, those times are over and which is a recurring theme in Peck and Paw. And then again, there's, you know, these villains who are like the hired hand. They're just so foul and dirty and very realistic. It's like, yeah. you kind of feel like you're there and, you know, it's the kind of film that I think um, influenced like Unforgiven and, later on when people were trying to make very realistic westerns that were you know try to imagine what it was really like and this mining camp that they go to where there's this wedding uh always just sticks in my mind and i've just always been curious why that is never something that's shown in peck and paw retrospectives or talk talked about with peck and paw and i'm a huge huge peck and paw fan and that's when i feel like gets overlooked and it's got everything you want as a peck and paw viewer it's so fun i love it but uh and it, to me it's moving also it's a moving movie at the end it's very um i don't want to give it away but there's um really there's death involved there's yeah. a death and it's kind of beautiful <laughs> and the way he handles yeah. the way the actor handles it in the lines of the character I just think it's really noble. I hope I would go out that way. But credible film that I yeah, think that's lovely. not enough people see. Sergio Leone liked it. Did he? Yeah. There's a lot of elements in Once Upon a Time in the West. from. Uh, oh, sure. Uh, interesting. I'll have to go back and look at that. Um, another one. This is something that's kind of personal to me. It might not be for everyone, 
but I did find this very odd film and um, it's kind of a weird story, but I was at a flea market and I go to flea markets a lot. I always try to look at films when they're there. There's very rarely 35 millimeter films and there's a guy who's been bringing out this like Filipino movie for literally 15 years and I'm always like, ah, cans! And I look and it's the same Filipino movie. <laughs> but I was there a few years ago and there was these two film cans and the only information on them was a scrawled pen um, number that said 1981 and I thought, ooh, that's a good year. Good year, yeah. And the guy said, oh, it's a porno. Blah, blah, blah. And I was still like, well, you know, and he wanted kind of too much for it and Joe, is this going to be our first porno on uh, <laughs> the movies that made me? It turns out it, it has to be. Which picture does it turn out to be? <laughs> well, it's a picture you probably haven't heard of before, um, and it's not a porno. And as it turns out, damn. later in the day, I came back and I unspooled some of it and I held it up, and all it was was two feet in roller skates and tube socks. And oh. I thought, oh, it's on. I need this. Even I if it's a porno, like what's going on? I and have we, seen this movie. We haggled and I ended up taking it home and it sort of sat in a closet for a while. And one night we were working hard. I was working at a theater that had 35 projection and we were working late and somebody said, hey, let's quit. Like, why don't we just roll that weird porno that John found? <laughs> and we put it on and it turns out it wasn't a porno. It's a documentary on the roller boogie scene in Bedford-Stuyvesant in 1981. And it's a movie called Get Rolling. It was like uh, I caught a skating fever or something. You know, I didn't even come home that night. I, I sat there amazed by all the skaters and all the music and all the power and all the energy in the ring. And uh, the next morning I, I went and bought me some skates and I've been skating ever since. Basically, there's a massive, massive skating rink there that just closed last year. And you are spending all this sort of verite time in this roller rink with some of the most colorful, interesting characters I've ever seen in a film. You just don't see these people ever in movies. And um, people in coordinated uh, robes with turbans doing you know, synchronized roller skate moves. Uh, there's a guy dressed as a cowboy who doesn't skate around. He actually just stands in the stream of skaters and just dodges them. And another guy who has, he's a saxophone player, has a eyeglass brand and has a um, very prestigious custom van. He goes to these van shows. And as this film unfolded, I mean, our jaws dropped. And you're going to crap games on the sidewalk. You're in pool halls. You're at this van show. You're in this roller rink. And you're seeing all this life on the streets of Bedford-Stuyvesant. And these characters, it's a, ostensibly a documentary of these people that I don't think ever get a chance to be on the big screen. And um, it is rough around the edges. There's no question. It's sort of like one of those movies like Wild Style where they have sort of staged dramatic 
scenes, but uh, we were intrigued, and I couldn't find a soul. I should have called you, Joe. I couldn't find a soul who knew about this movie. Uh, nobody had ever heard of it, and I started tracking down the director. It was very difficult, and I had a bunch of friends helping me, and eventually I got this weird phone number, and I called it, and it was a building on Skid Row, and this man had fallen on very hard times, and he was very cagey. He said, where'd you get my film? And was very standoffish, but I got him to agree to meet me at Starbucks on Hollywood and Vine, and he even, I, I walked in there, and he didn't stand up and say, how are you, John? I mean, I was scanning the room, but he was like scoping me out. Like, is this guy going to rip me off? Is he going to, or I don't know exactly what. And eventually he came up to me. We sat down and we had a coffee. And he still was just, you know, asking me, where'd you get this? What, did, you know, it was very standoffish. And I said, well, right now I'm working with a theater um, on Fairfax. And he said, well, what movie are you showing tonight? And I said, well, it's our Christmas week. So we're showing It's a Wonderful Life. And he just lit up and he said, I'm a huge Capra fan. And it turns out he was a film buff, especially classic films. So we were off and running and we became fast friends. And I started telling him sort of all his, um, you know, hesitation and, and uh, mistrust fell away. And I said, this film needs to be seen. We need to do something. And he explained that he had actually, um, uh, get, gotten ripped off on the film that it had only played for a few nights uh, in New York. It played one night in LA and uh, basically a distribution company that in, distributed independent films, which is well known, which I won't mention, basically used this as some kind of tax write-off um, and he got nothing. And the story actually is much more um nuance than that because big studios were taking an interest in this guy and roller skating was hot and he was in on the inside he came out to LA he was in instantly introduced to Sidney Poitier and Quincy Jones and he had this summer where he was hot and he was doing all these meetings he signed a deal with Michael Jackson he actually also made a film of the Jackson 5 going to Africa um and at least that's what he told me, and somewhere that exists as well. But um, at this point, when I met him, he was homeless, and we arranged like a secret screening, because at that time, I, I didn't understand totally about the rights because of this distribution company. And I was actually very nervous at the screening. I didn't know if people would like it, and the, cr the crowd just exploded. I mean, there's so much um, joy in this movie and there's these crazy characters and it's this peak behind the curtain where you're just seeing this world you never see or unless you grew up in those neighborhoods in East New York in that time, you know, and there's these decaying buildings as the backdrop and then these colorful, exuberant people roller skating through who are just so... Um, excited about life and um a lot of things happened to these people two of them there's three main characters and two of them are now deceased but the third went on to europe and had a number one hit song in italy 
which he would perform on roller skates playing saxophone. And, and I actually threw, oddly enough, the writer Larry Karaszewski knew some people in the roller skating underground now in New York. <laughs> I know. I know. And he gave me a number of this woman. <laughs> And I started describing him to her, and she said, oh, yeah, I know who he is. It's Blady Flonus, as he goes by now, and he's still around. So I actually got in touch with this guy, and we talked on the phone a bunch, and he, too, got ripped off. And so he had very bad feelings about this movie. But he now still, to this day, it's been years now, he sends me a package every week with a CD or a cassette tape with him just talking. He pitches lots of reality show ideas to me. He plays saxophone. He sends me calendars with different shots of Michelle Obama with aliens. All this interesting <laughs> oddball stuff. And I, I think he thinks I'm a producer or something. I don't know. But I still, I mean, I got one this week. And I now have hundreds and hundreds of these packages. And I'm just waiting to get everyone together to do this, to do a, a public screening of this. And the good news is there is a nonprofit that is trying to restore it. We've found all the elements, um, the rights. We managed to get the rights res- uh, returned to the director, Terrence Mitchell. And so something hopefully will happen. But it was a very weird story. And the movie is called Get Rollin'. I can't recommend it enough. And, you know, anyone who's interested, let me know. It's only on 35 at this point. So you need a 35 millimeter projector to show it. But I realize it's it's the second movie on this list that I've seen because of you. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, that's hilarious. Yeah, it's talking such, about it, I'm like, I've seen that. And, it's great. And to this day, mm. I've told told lots of people about it, but I couldn't find anyone who had seen it, and and it just vanished from the earth. Mm. And what happened was that just a few months later, they put out Skate Town USA and the film Roller Boogie with um, Linda Blair. Yeah, with uh, Linda Blair. Yeah, and and the studios. The studios were completely aware of, of Get Rollin' and were, according to the director, were actively trying to keep him from releasing it before they released those the two movies, movies, which are funny movies, but aren't anything. This is the only documentary on this phenomenon, and it's really, really wild. So that's something I really, really want people to see. And I think now it could be really popular. I mean... I think people would click on it, like on VOD, forget it. Like yeah. anyone would want to see it. And I cut this little trailer of it to um, kind of lure people into the screening we did. And I've gotten more feedback on that trailer. We sold the story rights. Me and Terry, he went into all these big producers. <laughs> and we ended up selling the story rights. And hopefully something will happen with that. And a whole bunch of really interesting people were interested in the film is the trailer you caught on youtube um it's not and i would love to send it to you um and uh now that he has the rights i believe i can put it up and it would be kosher but um a lot of people are interested in doing something with this so hopefully it will come out soon um you've rescued a film from oblivion maybe i'd be really proud if i did really proud um and uh, there's more things on this list. Um, maybe this is way off he the beaten He apologizes track. before each one. I know. I, I know. Well, <coughs> I, I don't know, but... Well, 
One thing I, I literally about the only thing you could say at this point is I don't know if this will top the others. We, we, <laughs> we can't see the audience; they can't judge you. Okay, good. Yeah. No judgment. I like that. I like that. Well, I wanted to talk about a filmmaker more than a feature film, but that filmmaker is Bruce Connor, and this is another person. I just feel like these films need to be seen, um, and I do not understand. <laughs> why there isn't a criterion of Bruce Conner's short films. Bruce Conner was an experimental filmmaker and an artist, and he was very, very influential on the American New Wave or the late 60s, 70s film scene, whatever you want to call that incredible renaissance. And he's been called the godfather of the music video, which he hated, and he would say, uh, wasn't my fault about music videos. <laughs> But a lot of his techniques were just kind of, you know, transferred over to make these music videos. But he had all kinds of films. The first one I saw was um, a movie called A Movie, which was all found footage <clears throat> and pieced together to create a new narrative. And um, it's one of the inspirations for the movie orgy. Now, see, that's interesting oh. because the movie orgy. Which could you actually could you explain what the movie orgy is? Because that um, was one of my favorite nights well, in it's cinema. A, it's a pastiche of, uh, of found footage, basically, and it, it's it tells several different stories simultaneously and has lots of clips that remind people of things that they hadn't seen since they were kids, and uh, things are juxtaposed in a way that makes them more ridiculous than they <laughs> really are. Uh, and uh, Bruce Connor was, of course, when I was in the, in film school. Uh, was uh, a, a quote underground filmmaker mm. and uh, one of our teachers was a big fan of window water baby moving and mm. they, we would, he would run that ad nauseum actually <laughs> uh, but but we became uh, Bruce Conner was a, a definite influence mm. uh, and this was in the late 60s mm -hmm. but uh, I think the the Maya Darren's of the world and, and, and the people who worked in this particular strata uh, are underrepresented today because there's almost no place to go to find them. And people don't, unless you go to film school, nobody teaches you about it. So it becomes, it, it, it really becomes a subset of the art world. And um, there aren't really a lot of people, a lot of acquaintances that I have who know those kind of films. I agree. And I spent a lot of time in the last 15 years showing these films. I, um, did a Bruce Conner reel that was one of the my proudest moments of showing movies and um, put together stuff from his uh, his whole life and I got access to the archive and showed things that had never been shown and they were incredible and the audiences loved them and and this like you said Maya Darren or even Kenneth Anger I've done several Kenneth Anger screenings. I do not understand why this guy is not more famous amongst, I mean, a lot of filmmakers, he's influential, but why people don't know his name. And I first met him at the cemetery, the Hollywood Forever Cemetery, because they were doing a photo shoot with him and the photographer had me there just to keep him in, calm and distracted so they could actually get a photo of him. He's notorious for being um, a bit of a grump and you know difficult to work with but uh what happened is we got in a golf cart and we started driving around 
the cemetery, and he was pointing out graves of all the people from his book, Hollywood Babylon, all these sort of notorious figures from Hollywood's past. And we became friends, and for years and years, I tried to convince him to do a screening with me. And finally, he agreed to do one in the cemetery. And once the images of his film were on the big screen, I just couldn't believe it. The audience was blown away. I was even blown away. And they're so beautiful. They're always changing. They're so inventive. And they're entertaining. You can watch these films. They're very entertaining. Bruce Conner, too. This is not necessarily hard art. And um, I think with Bruce Conner, he has all this range. He does something like a movie or um, Cosmic Ray was his big one, which I just showed last summer. And it's to um, uh, a Ray Charles song, really rocking Ray Charles song. It's been sampled many times. And it's, I believe it's something like 2,000 images that he's cut together of strippers and scientific footage and lights and film leader and all these amazing things that turn it into this like psychedelic, super fast moving, super entertaining piece that is like a music video. And I, I sometimes do these salons of experimental films in my backyard and we showed that as the finale. And I mean, people were screaming during, <laughs> I mean, they were, it was like a ball game when it was over. They were just like, and I'm, I'm just not sure why. Well, Bruce Conner was a big influence on the trip. Uh, mm. if oh, sure. seen the, 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 the editing style of the trip is, mm-hmm. is definitely lifted from Bruce Conner uh, and a lot of the imagery as well. Uh, and that's probably about as mainstream as it ever got. Right. Because mm. Hopper and all, and you know, all uh, those guys knew all that stuff. Yeah, they were all buddies. And I don't know. I, I just think there's experimental film that's really interesting, really creative, really beautiful, really entertaining. And I just wish that more of it was getting shown. Again, this is... Well, there used to be a thing, or there still is, called the Independent Film Channel. Yeah. Which now runs, I guess, reality shows. Sure. Uh, that started out, the idea was, when it started out, was that we were going to... They were going to... Oh, were they going to show the, independent films? Bring to the masses <laughs> independent the films. It was a clever idea, because that's why they called it Independent Film it, Channel. It makes see. sense now. Uh, now, of course, much like Kentucky Fried, it's IFC. <laughs> it's it's not really independent films at all anymore. Uh, all these ideas start out like really interesting, and then they just get so homogenized that well, you know the uh, the thing. MTV that used to stand for music. They yeah, to, that's they used right. to show music videos on that channel. Not a lot of people know that, but uh, yes. Well, that's a thing of the <laughs> past, anyway. Well, we're dating ourselves, <laughs> but you would think somebody like like Hulu or uh, what's yeah. what's the the film um, blanking it? I filmstruck. Uh, filmstruck, yeah, you know, yeah. would have. Well, they're they're uh, into more narrative films, I think. But but they could just they could. Eh, yeah. Well, I know that this <gasps> this show I put together of Bruce Conner's work, um, you know, we we had a packed house every night. People loved it. People still mention it to me. People have stopped me on the street and say, "How can I see those again?" You know, these are not like a really obscure, hard things that. Um, even though they're artistic and well, are challenging. They, are they available on DVD? No. Is there a reason for that? I know the that rights? I know that working with the estate, um, you know, it was, there was, uh, I had to get special permission to show them. And then that turned into my enthusiasm 
helped me get into the archive and I did show some things that he had never released that were never shown um but I guess you'd have to ask them I mean it's perfect for Criterion Criterion's done now now less blank films mm -hmm. I think this is perfect mm -hmm. and I'm a huge fan of less blank as well and did show his lost film up until that point in my backyard because the only way to show it was on 16 in a private screening with him present and we had um over 200 people crammed into my backyard looking at this screen and um it's a film called a poem as a naked person which is now available thank goodness which was a documentary he made on leon russell in the south and um leon russell wouldn't let him release it it's funny and brilliant and um i feel like now it's set up criterion could do stuff like this they could do bruce connor and you know the elements are there he'll do his films will show at MoMA in New York, and mm -hmm. they'll do these, like as you said, Joe, like these art world things. But I'm yeah, looking, I'm looking for more like of that a, stuff. You know, Amazon has a DVD called Two Films by Bruce Conner that is currently unavailable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know of one bootleg DVD in L.A. for rent. And if it's for rent, that'll give you a clue of where yes. it is. Because that really narrows it down. But I will say no more on that. And, and you know, every once in a while, something will show up on YouTube, but usually it gets taken down very fast. So download if you see it. For posterity, of course. Up um, next, the second Mission Impossible film, I'm guessing. Yes. Is that on the one list. with... No, I don't. <laughs> um, hmm, what should I pick next? I mean, this is an oddball thing, but I really love this Soderbergh movie called The Limey. My name's Wilson. You wrote me about my daughter. This bloke she was bunked up with. Terry Valentine. What's he got to say for himself? You tell him! Get to give what I'm after. You tell him I'm coming! Tell him I'm coming! How is that oddball? Oh, that's, a, that? that's, a, that's a comparatively popular movie. That's a, is it? Yeah. Oh, okay, is, we'll skip that, that one. No, that's Because I don't know anyone who ever talks about it or. Really? Well, look, yeah. I mean, that brings you to a different, a, a different discussion, which is <laughs> yeah. What, yeah. People, what do people talk about yeah. about movies anymore? You know, yeah. I mean, the, the art of discussion hmm. uh, more or less vanished about. 10 years ago with blockbuster movies. People don't come out of those movies and talk about them. I For, agree. Sometimes they're so pummeled just by the experience that they can't talk when they come out anyway. But when I used to go to movies when I was in college, I mean, the whole idea was that you would, you'd see the movies and then you'd go out and you'd talk you'd about go them. To a bar. Or you'd go home or you'd get pizza yeah. or, you know, you'd go to a bar and you'd talk yeah. about them. And, you'd, and there was, a, there was a, a lively give and take exchange, whether we, people liked it or didn't like it or whatever. I mean, certain directors and themes and, all that kind of stuff. I mean, that was that was in the zeitgeist. It's just not anymore. Well, as a programmer, at one of my gauges of how did that show go, I can tell as soon as people walk out, if they're smiling, if they're talking, they're talking about the films. It does happen with older films, mm -hmm. of course. You can see it. There's this, like, dialogue going on. I miss that. That's what we all did. You know, it's like getting the pie after the movie thing, you know, it's really sad, but when you see it happen now, it's exciting. 
But I do have a theory about these new films, the blockbusters, the big Hollywood films, and I, I feel like there is some fundamental thing missing. And I feel like it's television, whatever you want to call that now, the streaming binge thing. Uh, I feel like it's starting to influence films we see in the theater, films released by big studios. And I feel like there, there's a certain idiom for television. You know, it's dialogue heavy. It's ex explanation heavy. Te television was designed so that you can go into your kitchen, cook a meal, have the TV on, listen, and you're not missing anything because there's so much dialogue. Uh, you know, whereas cinemas look, don't tell, or show, don't tell. And I feel like that's starting to creep into big blockbuster movies. Like you're seeing all the things they do on television shows. And I watch these shows too, and some of them are fantastically written. But the cinematic experience of being shown something, so often now you have the jerky handheld close-up of someone's face clearly explaining everything about the plot to you. You know, so much of that comes from TV and I think studios are worried. They're competing with streaming shows. They want to emulate them. Maybe that's a motivation or that the audience is. My fear is, is that I show so many movies to millennials. I show movies to teenagers every weekend. My fear is that they'll take the streaming TV stuff as the norm and cinematic things themselves will seem old and creaky and uninteresting the same way that I've heard them say, you know, oh, I don't watch black and white movies, you know, like there's nothing for me there. And I, I, I feel like what you're doing specifically is, is you're making that special for them. You're making movies again. You're, you're making you're giving, an, an event. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's, they are differentiating. It, what, what is, what now has to be made into an event used to be a commonplace experience. Exactly. Yeah. But it isn't for this generation. Exactly. But have you thought experience. about, I feel like the limey would be in the far outer edges of something you might actually be able to show. Yeah, I mean, I mean that's it's a, in color. Yeah, it's it's, color. Color. it's it's a it's a hip director, well, you know, crazy I, Steven Soderbergh. Yeah, hip movies, and it's like an it's, action film. It it's a revenge film, film but yeah. the way it's structured is so cool to me. Yeah, I don't know if he did that after or that was in the script, but you just see Terrence Stamp, who's so watchable, and he's spending so much time thinking. Like, there's all these moments where he's thinking and. And he'll remember something and he'll remember it twice. And it's actually a different take. You know, they'll say something in a different way. And you don't know if he's anticipating it or thinking back. Really interesting. But I agree that maybe we've, is, is We've mainstream. talked about it before, I think, of the show. And there's this, have you ever, uh, uh, not to take away from the cinematic experience, but it is one of the great, great, great DVD audio commentaries. The one between, uh, it's Steven Soderbergh and the writer Lem Dobbs. Uh, for the limey. the limey, it is. Oh, I got to listen to that. Ridiculously entertaining because <laughs> they obviously have tremendous love and respect for each other, and they are also the quintessential director and the quintessential writer. So they're just beating each other up constantly as well. Um, I know there was a lot of improv with some of the dialogue, at least from a friend of mine. Yeah, I think so, and they also, and I think some <laughs> of the structures in the script, but some of it's Soderbergh, and yeah. but it's it's Lem Dobbs getting tweaked that you know a scene that he wrote verbatim twenty years ago is hailed in the New Yorker Review as being you know a sign of Soderbergh's directorial brilliance, and <laughs> um, that must that must sting. Well, you um, occasionally get that, you know. And also, I just not have I just sort of probably shouldn't bag on that. I, I just saw Gotti um, a Why? couple of weeks ago. 
Because you, I don't know, You're Joe. I got zero on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> yeah. It's how how bad could it be? And the strange thing, many fan, strange a, a things. Toupee about, fan? Or what? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's uh, it it is the only mob movie um, made by people who actually, I think, um, emulate the characters in those films completely and unabashedly. Uh, they think these guys are just cool, but Lem Dobbs is one of the writers in the script, and I have absolutely no idea how that could have possibly happened. Um, I have to imagine it got rewritten. Um, but anyway, yeah, no, Limey's. But yeah, I, I probably wouldn't be something I'd show at the cemetery. And I think you're right, Joe, you do have to make it an event to draw people down. But I'm hoping that they're seeing them and then they're sparking some interest. And, you know, checking out other old films. And I'm also hoping, however tangentially, that people who are working in the industry, because tons of them live in L.A., or starting out, you know, or coming and seeing these films and getting influenced. But, yes. Well, there used to be, you know, the, the, this is one of the few places in town that you can go to see an old movie. Yeah. Now, I mean, we, when I first came out here, there was a bunch of revival theaters. Uh, lots of prints, which is what was so great about being in L.A., was that there would be studio prints were available to be seen. Uh, and th then they started closing them. I remember and the state. The state, the Fox Venice. The, the, there, was, there were a lot of the Encore. Yeah. I mean, there were a lot of places you could go. Uh, now, with the New Beverly closed, for, yeah. I guess until the end of the year, um, and the Cine Family closed, uh, there's the museum, and there's Hollywood Forever. Yeah. Cinematech. In the Cinematech. Yeah. And that's yeah. about it. Yeah. And the the buzz, you know, the excitement factor uh, and the arrow, I guess, um, isn't quite as high as it used to be. And a lot of these people have seen some of these movies too many times to be shelling out money to see them on a screen again since they got them at home and they got them streaming and they got them, you know, they saw them in theaters. And it becomes a challenge, as you know, to try to find a way to program stuff that will bring people in and make them happy without being redundant and just saying, well, can we run The Wizard of Oz again? You know, uh, I mean, there's, there's the list of the sacrosanct 50 pictures that you can always get people to come see. Uh, but a lot of the pictures that are lower on that list toward you know, the, the hundreds and the 150s are as good or better than a lot of those movies that are on that list. I agree. Well, one of the things I love about what John does um, you know, he, he shows, it's not for us specifically. It's not for, you know, you, you, Joe, or me, because it's, you know, I, I always look at the schedule and it's like, I've seen all these movies 500 times and I always make a point of going to a couple because it's always fun to see them again. But, but the fact that there's going to be 4,000 people watching The Graduate next, next week, mm -hmm. um, at least half of whom haven't seen it, you know what you were saying a minute ago. I guarantee you, just just the the odds favor some of those people are going to go home and investigate. I mean, that's you're 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 doing this tremendous service for kids by creating this this kind of event. I mean, um, remember the first time you saw The Graduate? I sure, mean, it blows your mind. I do remember where I was and uh, the, how how the screen was too small because it was a twinned <laughs> theater in Philadelphia. I couldn't believe that they had twinned this great theater and now they had screens that were so small and it was a scope picture. So it was a little, a little letterbox. Oh, yeah. I had to, had to sit in the front row. Um, but uh, it, was a, it, it, it was a pretty, uh, as, as somebody from that generation, let me tell you, the, the impact of that movie, uh, just from the opening credits on, yeah. was phenomenal. And it, it'll, it'll have that impact on someone else. I, th will... I think it's still, 
you know, will speak to, and I, especially now when there's, there is a generation, I've been getting to know some teens and how's that going? They're incredible. I'll be totally honest. Watch it. You're going to get fired. They're incredible. Just imagine the world they're coming into. Oh boy. We're like (laughs) Trump is president. Global warming. I wouldn't want to be coming into that. I mean, imagine (laughs) what they're up against. And I can't, I'm always surprised at how intelligent and how, you know, how hard they're planning on working, how much they've got invested in the world. It's really surprising after other generations like millennials and also. well, they're forced. Yeah, what's well, a survival? Time. Yeah, yeah, and we, they're smart. We can spend all of our time, and they're smart. Theaters. And now imagine coming up in that world where you have access to yeah. all this information. Yes, there's misinformation, whatever, but you have access to all these things. You know, well, and that's it's another, incredible. That's, that's another reason why, in order to get people out to yeah. see this film. Uh, they have to. We have to wade through the minefield of all the other options that they've got. Yeah, options that we never had. That's what we fight every day. But the reality is, people want to get together. They want to see a movie like it's meant to be seen in yeah. a crowd. They want to feel that feeling of a crowd. Yes, they've seen it five hundred times, but they want to see it with four thousand people. So, and and Josh, I would even challenge what you said. Okay, because. I'll bet you I am showing some movies you haven't seen 500 times. Okay. Have you seen Friday 500 times? You are correct. I have not seen Friday. I have seen Friday once. Have you seen The Craft 500 times? Um, <laughs> I'm not going to comment on that one. <laughs> 400. But, you know, my point is that we are trying to, we have to, I should say, we have to mix it up to get that many people in week after week. You got to show something that's for this group. Sure. That's for that group. And, you know, um, we still try to find movies that are well-crafted and funny and that will entertain a crowd. Because if you have 4,000 people, they're drinking, they're hanging out, if they start to lose interest in a film, yeah. I mean, it spreads like wildfire. And, and I've had that experience many years ago. No Bergman. Yeah. <laughs> you have to be really careful. And you could do Bergman if they were prepped and they were fans of Bergman there ready to watch that. So, you know, you're bringing in different groups. And that's been really fun for me because I never imagined I would show the film Friday. But actually, Friday is fantastic. It's so (laughs) L.A. It's actually a funny script. Chris Tucker's incredible. And so it's been fun for me to go outside what I think is great and find these new things that are well-crafted, great movies. and but there's also something there's a weird i i can't, I can't even put a words but but it, it, you're not it's not like just going off to seeing you know to see a movie in a big theater which mm. is still an experience that at least some of us you know love um it's it's so much more than that there's the it, it really is much more communal even than going to a movie theater what you do um and i'm seeing it spring up various places now people more and more yeah they have uh, screenings on roofs screenings. yeah they used to do one in bar, in bar trails from hell used to do screenings at barnsdale park really a couple of summers ago i never told me the um <laughs> that's how well advertised it was <laughs> <laughs> um but but yeah there's something to that 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 i think you've you've done a beautiful end run around the ubiquity of tv and and videos and um youtube and stuff by by creating this experience that really makes people come out and and the fact that thousands of people are going to see movies they have not seen before well there are those there are those moments like you described where 
It's nothing I've done. It's everyone there suddenly decides we're getting on our feet. Like, I showed Footloose for 4th of July. And I chose it because it's kind of cheesy and American. But actually, you know, it does have some good qualities to it. I'm not kidding. Like, I kind of was surprised. And, um, And it's fun. But it was a little deeper than I thought. But I'm mentioning this because at the end, they're gone footloose. They've had a dance. I've always thought that part was so cheesy. But this woman way up in the front stood up. And she just started dancing. You know, there's 4,000 people sitting watching the movie. And there's a tiny figure. I was in the back. Uh, tiny figure in the front. She just started dancing kind of crazy. And then some people near me got up. And they just started dancing like, fuck it, you know. And then some other people. And then some other people. And literally, I mean, like a weird thing. Eventually, all these people were dancing until every single person in there was dancing. And the movie was still on. They were just going for it. It was like that weird thing that just becomes infectious. And it's like they're swept up in this moment. You know, it's nothing we planned or tried to do. or It was just totally this weird celebration of everybody simultaneously being there, being alive. You the know? spirit of St. Vitus. Yeah. <laughs> just, See, and they'll throw you out of the arc light for that. <laughs> yeah, it's so yeah. cool. And so those moments, I'm like, okay, this is what makes it worth it. And that's when I realized, like, you know, I've facilitated this thing. I've, I keep doing it, but it's the people that come there, and it's the people of LA, really. These fil- people who love films and who are creative, all just coming together. That they, they they create this experience, and I think that's why people have been coming back for seventeen years. Yeah, and I think it's just a weird, indescribable that's practically feeling. A generation. Oh, I've had huh, one of. I've had lots of proposals there people like to propose there which is really sweet but i had um, a couple come up to me and they said hey we had our first date here i said that's great and she said now we're married i'm like that's incredible and she said and here's our 14 year old daughter she comes to the screen now and i just spun into like a wormhole i was like oh my gosh you know and we do it is all ages so teenagers can come and teenagers love it because you know, their parents let them go. It's a safe night out, but they get to be on their own. It's like the drive-in without cars. It is like a drive-in. It has that feeling. And and so I've been meeting teens. And like I said, they're an incredible generation that's coming up. They're so much smarter than us. And yeah. it might be hard to believe, but they're very, at least in Los Angeles, they are woke. They are know what's going on. They're determined. It's fascinating. And they're smart. And they're interested in film. And so there's all these kids there. They have their own little worlds, you know, that I'm not a part of. And they're they're in there and they know what they like and they come out to these movies. And to think that I can do that, you know, I remember growing up as a teenager in L.A. It was difficult to find places to go mm-hmm. and, and be with a lot of people that, you know, we did all kinds of crazy stuff to get together and to have a place that they can go. And maybe they'll get interested in... Mike Nichols and Buck Henry and Dustin Hoffman and Catherine Ross after this film on Saturday, you know, that's really exciting for me. But yeah, I felt very old when this couple came up to me. I was like, oh my gosh, I've been, what am I doing? (laughs) But, you know, it's been an interesting, interesting thing to be a part of for sure. Well, well, fine then. Yeah. (laughs) 
Thanks. Thank as, you, as guys. This, this so has fun. been an interesting thing to be part of. Oh, those are some great movies. It's it uh, a weird list. Uh, no, that's that's what we want. That's what we're hoping for. Um, well, John, thank you for uh, joining us. This has been a pleasure. I thank hope, you guys um, so much. If folks are listening to this in L.A., uh, go to, is it synespia.com? Dot org. Dot org. I'm sorry. And, and Just type in cemetery movies. And That's however, you will, you will have missed The Graduate. You will have missed The Graduate, <laughs> yes, sadly. Um, but uh, uh, the, the screenings are, if, uh, they are every bit as wonderful as John has made them sound. Uh, it is a good time out of the movies. Surrounded by your favorite dead people. That's right. Some of them moving. <laughs> Our show is recorded in Hollywood, California, crossroads of the world. We are the official podcast of TrailersFromHell.com, the best damn movie website there is. Our engineer is Don Barrett, who also wrote, produced, and created our theme song. This is Josh Olson for The Movies That Made Me. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from The Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.